0: Contrary to the authoritative statements issued by some humanitarian organisations, not all the Rwandan refugees who had been living in eastern Zaire for two years returned home in November. Dislodged from the Bukavu and Goma camps by the Tutsi Banyamalenge, a hundred thousand of them arrived in Tingi-Tingi, west of the Kivus. They had walked for more than a month, fleeing the advance of rebels supported by the Burundian or Rwandan armies.
1: In December 1996, this report appears in the French newspaper Le Monde. Since the start of the month, thousands of Rwandan Hutu refugees and displaced Zaireans have been coming out of the forests in eastern Zaire. 38,000 people reappear near Shibunda in South Kivu province, while several thousand more are reported to be on the road north to the city of Kisangani, even further into Zaire. Many are in a bad way. For weeks they've been hiding from the Zairean Tutsi rebels who are part of the alliance forces that are backed by the Rwandan and Burundian governments. The group in Tingi Tingi is by far the largest and the ICRC asks MSF to help them provide aid. The article in Le Monde continues.
0: UNICEF and MSF teams have been working in Tingi Tingi for several days. The fleet of small aeroplanes has not yet been able to meet the camp's needs But the humanitarian organization's presence is reassuring. They may also ultimately be able to encourage UNHCR's international bureaucrats to take an interest in the fate of refugees under their protection in the Goma and Bukavu camps.
1: MSF has only recently been allowed back into the Kivus to care for the refugees and already they're faced with evidence of massacres carried out by the Rwandan-backed alliance.
2: They took us to these sites where there were indeed areas of of earth that had been displaced and they started digging them up again and uh, it was very hard to know who was actually buried there. I mean there there were signs that perhaps there were civilians because there was, I can remember there was a child's sandal and you know a lot of clothing.
1: But gathering proof of this is no easy task. Each humanitarian team is accompanied and watched by a so-called facilitator. And even within teams, it's proving hard to know whom to trust. MSF exploratory teams realise they're being used as bait by the Alliance to lure the refugees out of hiding. Once again, MSF is asking itself whether it should cease activities in the area at the risk of endangering its teams and other operations in the region. Or should it pursue them, condemning manipulation in the hope of preventing massacres? But as more and more injured and malnourished refugees emerge from the forest, can they justify withdrawing from the region when there's a clear need for medical aid?
3: Today, we say enough even war as frontier
2: wolves. Stop the bombing of defenceless civilians in Chechnya. There not be a scientific uh, research for that. We know
3: that those people are dying.
1: I'm Nick Owen. This is Speaking Out, the hunting and killing of Rwandan refugees in Zaire, a podcast by MSF. Episode 5. Forest Exodus. The Tingi Tingi camp in eastern Zaire is already overcrowded. Around 70,000 refugees are gathered along a landing strip, and MSF has set up a nutritional centre for children, along with six clinics, together with UNICEF. MSF France lays out the bleakness and complexity of the situation in a press release.
4: The team's preliminary medical evaluation revealed many cases of malaria, diarrhoea with suspicion of dysentery, severe anaemia, infected skin disorders, foot wounds and malnutrition among children. For now, cases of malnutrition have been detected, but we expect a major food crisis. Some refugees have even been reduced to eating leaves and roots. The site is in a swampy area. Several small surface streams are being contaminated by human waste. Médecins Sans Frontières has begun an urgent water purification and sanitation programme to prevent likely contamination of refugees. MSF is aware that armed ex-Rwandan army and inter groups, leaders of the 1994 Rwandan genocide, are almost certainly present among the populations we are aiding. To avoid creating permanent refugee camps in Zaire, we are responding under a framework of limited assistance.
1: Several hundred thousand people are still missing in the region. The Kivus are now completely under the control of the alliance and they're pushing west across the country and clashing regularly with President Mobutu's Zairean army. This camp at Tingi Tingi is in the next province west from the Kivus. MSF France has set up a rear base even further northwest in a city named Kisangani. There, a team is providing support to the general hospital and managing a medical transit centre for the Zairean population many of whom have been victims of lootings, rape and acts of destruction by the retreating Zairean armed forces. MSF France's press officer travels to Tingi Tingi and begins collecting statements from refugees about their journey since they left the camps in the Kivus to try and find out how many people may have died in the forests. With so many refugees to provide aid to, and so many MSF teams operating in the Great Lakes, Issues around communication and responsibility start developing internally at MSF. On the 11th of December, the MSF programme managers from the various sections report a deadlock between the international emergency teams.
0: MSF Amsterdam does not want to be the backup section anymore because it finds various sections do not respect the rules and ways of working in emergency team operations that all sections agreed upon months ago. Amsterdam feels it is pushed in a rather ceremonial role, providing general overviews instead of a coordinating role, and does not want to play this role any more. That is why Amsterdam announced that they are not the backup section as of last night. The other sections represented in yesterday's meeting, however, think it is important to keep a backup section in place. They do not want to take over the duties and think that Amsterdam should remain in the backup section in the Kivu crisis. Further inter-desk negotiating is going on today and the upcoming days to find solutions that will terminate this deadlock. We will keep you all updated on that.
1: In the end, it's decided that general updates on the whole region are no longer provided by MSF Holland, but separately by press officers from each section, with each one briefing only on their own area. In the new year, MSF France and UNICEF hold a joint press conference in Paris. The focus is on the rapidly deteriorating health situation and short food supply in Tingi-Tingi. But they are careful about what other information is given out. No one mentions the information that's begun to circulate about the massacres. MSF France press officer Anne
2: Guibert.
5: The press conference focused on the Rwandan refugee situation in the Tingi-Tingi camp and didn't address the problems of protection and attacks on refugees. The focus was on the lack of political will of the international community. It was a press conference that we organised with UNICEF, and it had a big impact. We thought that journalists were quite saturated with information, but in the end, quite a few came to the press conference. We were almost surprised, especially as our message was not particularly strong. UNICEF had done everything possible to ensure that the information we disseminated at the time remained factual without pointing the finger of blame, particularly at the UN agencies. There was no question of complaining about the actions of the UNHCR, which was still not present on the site after two months of procrastination. There was no question of pointing the finger at the fact that the World Food Program was not providing food because of a lack of money. They also refused to talk about the support of the perpetrators of the genocide in the camps, who were still there. So it was a fairly factual, basic line that we took, which was very focused on the lack of support from the international community.
1: MSF France and MSF Belgium publish a press release about the conference, while MSF UK puts out a summary of it. But not everyone is happy about the details in the original release. In an email to the MSF international press officer, the communications director at MSF Switzerland writes,
4: The title, 20 people are dying every day, is too similar to, are 13,600 deaths insignificant? Although the number appears to be confirmed this time, we should avoid using the tone that caused us a lot of damage in the international press.
1: He also points to political bias in only mentioning the alliance, not all the groups involved in fighting in the region. He continues...
4: The entire final section of the press release falls into the category of commentary. It may be a little soon to draw conclusions and point fingers at the international actors. In the phrase, lack of political will on the part of international actors, and paying the price of aid actors' slow response, we are accusing UNHCR, the ICRC, etc. Even if they are not named, they will know who we mean. In this situation, it is unwise to make accusations against our partners.
1: In the end, MSF Switzerland puts out the release, but removes the parts they're unhappy about. A couple of days later, the MSF France communications director emails their counterparts in the other sections, explaining their choices and stressing the need for urgency.
4: The repatriation of the Rwandan refugees was accompanied by particularly high mortality. 6,300 bodies in Goma, the region where the crisis was resolved the most favourably. At least 200,000 refugees left without real assistance in Tingi Tingi, Shibunda and Amisi, and dying of hunger, not including those still roaming the area. 10,000 returnees to Rwanda from Bukavu a week ago. Thousands of Burundian refugees were repatriated to war zones, several hundred of whom have been killed since they arrived. In the face of this pretty serious assessment, the reaction of the leadership of the UN agency responsible for protecting refugees is, at best, out of step, given the tragic situation of some of the Rwandan and Burundian refugees.
1: On the 21st of January 1997, a handful of reporters visit the Tingi Tingi camp to get a picture of what's happening on the ground in eastern Zaire. The MSF staff there are keen to speak out about the malnutrition and poor health of the refugees that they're witnessing on a daily basis. Brigitte Doppler, MSF France's medical coordinator, tells a French TV network that 55% of deaths are in children under
3: five. I
2: was the medical coordinator for Médecins Sans Frontières in the Tingi Tingi camp. When the journalists arrived, I knew almost all of them from the famine in Somalia a few years before. I took them directly to our medical facilities, including the nutrition centre and the camps where we treated people with cholera and diarrhoea. I was taking care of the children in the nutrition centre, and they were in a very bad condition. There was one child there who we were resuscitating, and they died in front of some of the journalists. We didn't have enough food. People were extremely tired and very sick. It was a disastrous situation. At the time, I thought it was impossible not to tell the world about what was happening. We were facing a really unusual and distressing situation. It was absolutely terrible. It was impossible to respond to the needs of these people in a logistical and human way, as they were arriving in such a catastrophic state of health, both mentally and
3: physically.
1: Some staff are also keen to speak out about not just what they're seeing, but also what they're hearing from the refugees, the reports of violence and massacres. MSF press officer Anne Guibert gives the journalist the witness statements she's collected, but the focus remains on the food crisis. Here's
5: Anne. The French government flew some journalists to Tingitingi camp, and some of them were briefed, off the record about the massacres before they left. There was AFP, there was CNN, there was France 3. But in the end, this message, this information that we gave them in a rather informal way did not come out in the articles that they published afterwards. It's true that sometime before, their emphasis had been placed on the lack of food and the logistical problems, and this was the focus that came out in the press after their visit.
1: The journalist's presence creates tension in the camp where the refugees are still waiting for a delayed food convoy. Groups of men start to gather around the World Food Programme warehouse and the threatening atmosphere eventually leads the MSF team to withdraw from the camp for the rest of the day. Later in the month, the French, Belgian and American sections of MSF issue new press releases warning about the alarming rise in malnutrition in Tingy Tingi. Each refugee in the camp has only received the equivalent of four days' supply of food since they arrived there two months ago. The cases of cholera are rising, but still most people are dying from diarrhoea. In early February 1997, the European Commissioner for Humanitarian Affairs, Emma Bonino, visits Zaire. She's outspoken in her findings and quoted in the French newspaper Le Monde.
0: Here we are facing a group of individuals who do not exist and who go undetected by the radar of the most powerful armies in the world. In December, we were told that there was no point in coming since almost all the Hutu refugees had returned home to Rwanda. We were accused of seeing things. The international community must acknowledge that it was mistaken. This matter has to be reopened.
1: She goes on to denounce the international community's policy of distributing only a trickle of aid specifically singling out the USA. Anne Guibert again.
5: Emma Bonino, uh, visit, choses... Emma Bonino, during this visit, said things that even we were unable to formulate and put across effectively. She arrived in Tingi Tingi with her aeroplane full of journalists and certainly had a much greater impact than Médecins Sans Frontières at that time. In fact, she said some really strong things, She passed on some really important messages with almost NGO language. The problem was that she spoke the language of humanitarian organizations and that we, MSF, were not capable of speaking out in this way at that time. If we had been able to raise our voice from the field, we could have had this coverage in the press and helped get this type of information out.
1: For many at MSF, the most important outcome from Emma Bonino's trip is her announcement that there are at least 200,000 Hutu refugees still in Zaire, perhaps as many as 400,000. The Rwandan ambassador to the UN immediately disputes these figures in a statement published by AFP.
4: We know that the real refugees have gone home, he says. He claims that there are no more Rwandan refugees in Zaire, only 40,000 Hutu soldiers and their families. He continues... We do not think it is appropriate for humanitarian organisations to extend the status of refugee to an army of criminals remaining in Zaire and who are keeping a small number of refugees hostage including their own families.
1: On the 4th of February, a rumour that the Alliance has taken a nearby town drives 40,000 refugees in the Shibunda camp back into the forest. The UNHCR is the only humanitarian agency in the camp in South Kivu and they suspect the refugees are heading further west into Zaire. The same day MSF notifies UNHCR and Western Nations ambassadors in Zaire of the gravity of the situation in eastern Zaire. They stress the urgent need to provide food to the Tingi Tingi refugees and work out how to reach and protect them. Three days later, the UNHCR calls for safe passage zones to be opened so that refugees from Tingi Tingi and Amisi, and those who fled from Shibunda, can return to Rwanda. On the 8th of February, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Sadako Ogata, visits the Tingi Tingi camp. She calls on the refugees to return to Rwanda, where she says it's relatively safe. She accuses the Hamway, that is the Hutu extremists, of preventing those refugees who want to go back from leaving, while acknowledging that not everyone will want to return. During her visit, she's handed an open letter signed by 500 refugees from the camp calling on her to resign for quote, having allowed hundreds of thousands of people to die by weapons and from hunger and illness. Since July 1994, UNHCR has continuously abandoned its primary mission of assisting and protecting refugees, the letter reads. Later in the day, another camp falls to the Alliance and many of the refugees at Tingi Tingi flee into the forest, just as those at Shibunda had done only days before. Four days later, a delegation of humanitarian organisations, representing CARE, Oxfam, the ICRC and MSF, testifies before the UN Security Council on the Great Lakes crisis. The President of MSF Holland, Jacques De Miliano, tells the Council that the rapidly advancing front line of fighting is becoming the main problem in the region. Even with doctors recording 20 to 30 deaths a day in Tingi Tingi since December, the exodus of refugees from the camps is now overtaking issues around lack of access and food for the refugees in eastern Zaire. He also demands that the UN acknowledges the downward spiral of the humanitarian and political situation over the border in Rwanda, where these refugees are being encouraged to return to by the UN's own High Commissioner for Refugees. Jacques D'Emiliano addresses the council.
4: Rwanda is almost on the verge of civil war. At the end of last year, in a period of six weeks, about one million refugees from Burundi and Zaire returned to Rwanda. This massive influx has caused a severe problem of integration, involving issues such as the return of homes, land and employment. An effective justice system is not yet in place, and prisons are severely overpopulated. A return of ex-Rwandan army soldiers and the militia has resulted in a spiral
1: of insecurity
4: in Rwanda. An increase in rebel activity has led to violent search operations by the Rwandan army.
1: MSF puts out a press release summarising the hearing and calling on the UN to act in the Great Lakes region. Aid agencies cannot solve these problems with biscuits, vaccines and water, it reads.
0: Since the beginning of the genocide in 1994 in Rwanda, The Security Council has consistently failed to abide by the Geneva Conventions and to take action to address the underlying causes of the conflict and to help find political solutions in the region. Humanitarian action has been used as a substitute for political action.
1: On the 20th of February, MSF France's administrator in Kisangani writes to headquarters asking why press releases often mention that the former Rwandan army and Intira Hamway are controlling the Zairean refugee camps.
0: We knew before going in where these refugees came from, who they were, and that they were certainly the armed groups that had participated in the genocide. We agreed to provide assistance in spite of that because there were women and children among them. I don't think that after ICRC visits criminal prisoners, they start denouncing the killers they've seen. We've got to agree that we made a choice here. These press releases have benefited UNHCR above all. From the beginning, they've done everything possible to avoid taking action and carrying out their mandate.
1: By the end of February 97, the front line is fast encroaching on the Tingi Tingi refugee camp. MSF France issues a press release calling for the most vulnerable refugees left there, women, children and the elderly, to be evacuated from the combat zones immediately. Our teams can no longer maintain a permanent presence in the camp because fighting is so close. We can only conduct short visits, it says. Then, in early March, Tingy Tingy falls to the Alliance. The fate of 160,000 refugees is unknown, an article in the French newspaper Lacroix quotes an MSF coordinator. He's just been evacuated from the nearby city of Kisangani because the fighting is getting too close.
4: There were 30,000 people in our hospital and feeding facilities, mostly women and children, who couldn't survive the walk. What has become of them? First, on Friday, the camp was emptied of its refugees. Today, the rebels announced that the refugees have come back. Just what is going on? There must be surveillance flights over Tingy Tingy. Given that the camp is located along the front lines, the refugees are also on the front lines of the fighting. We know that the refugees were planning to leave the camp in small groups so they could find food more easily and be less visible. According to an unconfirmed source, some are said to have headed south. If we have solid guarantees, the refugees must choose voluntarily to return to Rwanda and we must be able to accompany them on the way back, then yes... We support the humanitarian corridors in cooperation, of course, with UNHCR. We have an MSF team in the rebel zone in Goma. That team can take responsibility for that.
1: Alliance commander Laurent Desiré Kabila promises to create security corridors to repatriate the refugees to Rwanda. The idea of a multinational force for Eastern Zaire resurfaces in a proposal by the UN Security General. The French government supports the idea as they're very much against the alliance. But it's rejected days later by the USA and UK who have their own ties to the new Rwandan regime who are supporting the alliance. MSF USA communications director Samantha Bolton writes to operational directors questioning the wisdom of a press conference about the refugees in Tingi Tingi.
0: We must stay clear of any political statements which could imply anything which could be interpreted as a call for military intervention or we will be playing into the hands of the French government and certain elements in Kinshasa. I think this might be one time when MSF is better off just keeping quiet on any political front and only talking to journalists when asked, at least in the field, and also only on medical data. MSF is already seen as French. Anything we say about the refugees and protection will be taken in the light of our anti-rebel stand and our pro-French government stand.
1: However... The UN Special Envoy for the Great Lakes region encourages MSF to keep the pressure up to gain access to refugees. And over the next few days, MSF France condemns the international community's inaction in the media, and once again stresses the need for guaranteed protection and aid for the refugees, both those in Zaire and those returning to Rwanda and Burundi. Since the beginning of the year, The situation for humanitarian workers on the ground in Rwanda has been getting increasingly dangerous. MSF Belgium put out this press release in January 1997.
0: On Saturday night, three international organisations, Médecins du Monde, Save the Children Fund and Médecins Sans Frontières, were attacked by armed gangs. Three MDM volunteers were killed and a fourth was seriously wounded. The likely purpose of these attacks was to discourage any international presence in the field. In the last two weeks, acts of intimidation targeted at international organisations and civilian populations underscore a growing climate of insecurity.
1: The killers of these three Médecins du Monde staff had previously gone to the home of the MSF team, but they'd managed to keep them out. MSF calls on the Rwandan authorities to investigate the killings and ensure security for all humanitarian organisations in the region. By the end of the month, there have been three more security incidents in as many weeks, targeting MSF at three different locations in Rwanda. Understandably, all MSF sections in the region are concerned, and internal discussions come up with a few suggestions – These are to close non-essential programs, strengthen security measures, and announce to authorities that MSF will withdraw in three months if there's no improvement. Eventually, the MSF Belgian program manager concludes that even with constraints in certain at-risk areas, MSF can carry on providing medical assistance in Rwanda, but should limit advocacy activities. In a message to the other program managers and her team in Kigali, she writes,
0: Our duty of assistance and advocacy is to be close to this kind of population, even if assistance and advocacy don't always work hand in glove. In difficult circumstances, aggravated by the security situation, it is up to us to find a way to carry out our mission. I think the other MSF sections share this view.
1: Only days later, AP reports...
4: Gunmen ambushed a UN human rights team on Tuesday in a Hutu stronghold in southwestern Rwanda, killing four people in the third attack on international aid workers in recent weeks.
1: Operational directors decide to keep an MSF presence in Rwanda, but for essential life-saving programmes only. Security is reinforced, but teams won't have armed escorts or guards. At the end of February 1997... A report written by a Catholic priest in the Kivus is given to Amnesty International, members of the UN Security Council and the Belgian Cooperation Minister. The priest has been working in the region for four years and backs claims made by many aid organisations operating there that most of the Hutu refugees in Zaire have not returned to Rwanda. They all believe that over 650,000 are still in Zaire. Aside from the priest's account, there isn't a great deal about the Great Lakes crisis in the international press. On the 12th of March, the French Secretary of State for Emergency Humanitarian Action reports back from his visit to Zaire. He says there are no signs of humanitarian organisations working with refugees in the country, despite the desperate situation there.
4: Something unbelievable is going on. It's a silence, or a half-silence. The media is putting out low-key information in its reports on this catastrophe. The international organisations are annoyed too. What I am worried about is, bluntly, since this has to be said clearly, that because these are Hutu, they are not considered good refugees. We thought that the good refugees had returned to Rwanda last November and that the others, the ones who didn't go back, must have had reasons not to return, that they'd been involved in the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi minority. The result is that, yes, we help them, but reluctantly.
1: He announces that France's humanitarian emergency unit will provide support immediately. The French president calls on the international community to undertake a humanitarian intervention in eastern Zaire, but other countries ignore the call as they suspect France's main motive is to block the advance of the alliance the same day, an article in the New York Times reports that Kabila's alliance forces are leading a campaign with, quote, Tutsi volunteers from Rwanda bent on avenging the deaths of relatives at the hands of the Hutu. Citing foreign diplomats and Zairean human rights experts, the article concludes that many Rwandan refugees see only two options, either beg for international protection or keep pushing westward into Zaire. In mid-March, 75,000 refugees turn up in the town of Abundu near Kisangani. They're half of the group that fled the Tingi Tingi camp a month before. More people arrive every day, followed closely by the Alliance. By the 27th of March, Alliance forces reach Kisangani and take over the city. Kisangani is the economic capital of Eastern Zaire, and so this gives Kabila control of the entire region. MSF Holland and MSF Belgium send teams to Kisangani to support the influx of refugees and are surprised to find the local staff in good health. The site and supplies that MSF France left behind when they were forced to evacuate at the beginning of the month have not been looted. Because the region's new authorities don't want French organisations in the region, the reopened mission is registered officially under the MSF Holland banner, with the Belgian section coordinating the team of Belgian, French and Dutch volunteers and Zairean staff. But aid organisations are only allowed to travel 20 kilometres from the city and are blocked by the Alliance from getting water, food and medical supplies to the newly arriving refugees at Ubundu. At the same time, the refugees at Abundu are blocked from entering Kisangani and so they set up camps in the dense forest along the railway line connecting the two towns. After many delays, a train is finally authorised by the Alliance to travel the 150 kilometres from Kisangani to the stranded refugees at Abundu. MSF Holland's Marcel van Soest is meant to be heading back to Goma where he's field coordinator, but he ends up jumping on the train and finds himself as the only NGO worker among several journalists, World Food Programme staff, local staff, and a lot of food aid. Marcel is interviewed about the experience.
4: The train went very slowly, and it was very hot. It was the first time the train had been used in I don't know how many years. There were so many trees that it was just a solid green wall. Biaro was the first place we stopped, and then we went down to Cassisi. We didn't go all the way to Abundo because Abundo was said to be empty already. But at the first transit camp we found all these dead bodies where the fighting had taken place. That's probably why Kabila had said no on the previous days, because there was still a lot of fighting going on. The interhamwe had gone and the people left were just a skeleton march. They were all along the railroad. Some were walking and the strongest arrived at Biaro. It was awful. The third group that went south was the most vulnerable, the old, the women, etc., all of whom were very sick.
1: Marcel finds nearly 100,000 refugees spread out along the railway line at camps at Biaro and Cassisi, among others. They are near exhaustion, having walked hundreds of kilometres surviving on roots and leaves.
4: We stopped at several places, and it was clear that UNHCR knew that Kabila was not going to allow the refugees into Kisangani town so they had to make their own plan of what to do with them. UNHCR was fighting for them to stay where they were now at least and negotiate what should be done for them first. But the refugees wanted to go back to Rwanda because they were completely finished. They wanted to get out of the jungle, away from the fighting and the hunting. They were just desperate. I've never seen that in my life. No hope, nothing, just bring me back. That was very clear. They looked in bad shape, with big wounds on their feet, and many had gunshot wounds from the fighting just a couple of days earlier. I was alone, and I had nothing to treat them with. Nothing. That was horrible. UNHCR had a satellite phone, so that evening I reported to headquarters how serious it was there. They started preparing everything, so that was good.
1: When the train returns to Kisangani the next day, aid is organised to be sent to the sites where survivors have gathered. The MSF team is strengthened and staff set up two field hospitals and clinics in the area. But the Alliance are still refusing to let the refugees into Kisangani to get on flights returning to Rwanda. And so, they're trapped. Dr Eric Gomar is MSF Belgium's general director. He describes the devastation his staff witnessed
3: refugees uh, were spread around this uh, railway line that spreads from Ubuntu, uh, 125 kilometers from Kisangani to almost the door of Kisangani. To be honest, I've never in my extensive uh, career as a humanitarian doctor, I've never seen refugees in such a physical state. They were literally exhausted malnourished and, and sick. Actually the one we were seeing there were the survivor of the survival. They had been pushed, chased by different armed groups to go deeper in the forest and uh, entering into this uh, uh, kudusak, I would call it, uh, this uh, railway road going to Kisangani. My impression was that it was Literally like a comet, you had in front the strongest one, they could hardly walk. Needless to say, some of of them just continued and they went further to Congo-Brazzaville. But uh, this one, they had given up. I remember meeting an uh, old guy who was a teacher in the south of Rwanda. He left initially with uh, 11 children and his wife, and he, he entered into the, the forest with this whole family. And when he arrived in the camp of uh, Cassese, he was left with two children, his wife, and the nine other ones uh, had died on the way. And so this, this poor guy had seen his children uh, slowly, but uh, surely dying, and they had no choice. They, they, they could not stop, because every single night they were harassed by an armed groups, uh, mixed of AFDL and, uh, and Randy's troop interested to push them further in the forest. To give you an idea, we would distribute plastic sheeting because it was forest, there was initially no protection. And so uh, in the morning we would just lift each of the plastic sheeting that we could see was still on the ground and it was counting the dead under the plastic sheeting, literally. I would say that uh, uh, easily uh, two or three out of ten under this plastic sheeting were actually died during the night. It was an absolutely terrible situation.
1: By the end of March 1997, the Alliance is still refusing to allow the refugees to transit via Kisangani. They call on UNHCR to make those outside the city turn back. UNHCR develops a Rwanda repatriation plan that will take two to three months to carry out, far too long to help the trapped refugees. On 3 April 1997, the UN Secretary-General calls on Laurent Desiree Kabila to halt what he calls the slaughter of refugees and allow aid organisations to do their work. The US Department of State asks Kabila to facilitate the Rwandan refugees' repatriation, And four days later, the rebel leader agrees to repatriate the 100,000 refugees south of Kisangani. But the MSF medical coordinator in Kisangani says that at least a quarter of the refugees on the railways to Obundu are too weak to move immediately. He tells AFP news agency.
4: These people will need between three weeks and a month to return to a somewhat normal state of health and to be able to return to Rwanda, he added. ...noting that he hoped refugee selection for repatriation would be conducted on the basis of medical criteria.
1: Throughout April, the conditions for the stranded refugees deteriorates. Even though Alliance forces only allow aid workers to spend a few hours each day in the camps, the death rate starts to drop. But soon, cholera is found there. The international media still aren't covering the story much. MSF UK's director is acting as temporary spokesperson in Kisangani. In a message to all PR directors and press officers on the 12th of April, they write.
0: The whole repatriation operation is likely to be a pretty distasteful affair, a so-called showcase solution for the refugee problem. The last thing on UNHCR's mind is to protect refugees, and the relief aspect is likely to suffer while repatriation goes on. Given that infighting among the aid agencies is increasingly frowned upon by the media here, we're going to have to think very hard about what exactly we want to achieve by sending a spokesperson, which, by definition, increases media demands on us. Do we want feel-good stories about our work, or coverage of the humanitarian and human rights shortcomings of the operation? With the large number of journos expected to turn up, anything a press person will say will have impact, so we had better get our act together.
1: On the 18th of April 1997, the Alliance makes a U-turn and indefinitely delays the repatriation of refugees from Kisangani, claiming they might spread cholera. Tensions rise as Zairean villagers criticise humanitarian organisations for only helping the refugees, and there are confrontations among villagers, refugees and Alliance soldiers. Then, a WFP warehouse and a train carrying provisions are looted and aid operations in the area are suspended. With no access once again to refugees in desperate need, and little coverage in the international press as leverage, MSF finds themselves stuck on the outside, just as they were in the Kivus five months earlier. The UN Secretary-General declares that the rebels are killing people through starvation. An MSF Belgium task force meeting looks at what pressure they can bring to bear from afar.
0: We can make contacts with other organisations here, Oxfam and UNICEF, to avoid isolating MSF. In fact, over the last week, MSF Holland has begun a lobbying effort with an advocacy plan focusing on non-access to the camps, directed at the US and UK governments, and the European Union and European Parliament. This document includes a mild accusation of the Rwandan government. It's a very sensitive matter, possible consequences for international staff security.
1: A few days later, MSF receives a disturbing report from one of its drivers. He'd been travelling on the railway line out of Kisangani and says he saw only women and children on the roads, together with a large military presence around the camps at Biaro and Kasisi. He reports that the rebels have commandeered the men to go to one of the camps and the next morning he hears gunfire in the distance. Later, he sees nearly 500 bodies. His account backs up the rumours about massacres and mass graves in eastern Zaire and the rapidly emptying refugee camps south of Kisangani. Meanwhile, a UN investigation team led by Roberto Garreton is running a preliminary mission looking for mass graves in eastern Zaire. The AFP reports.
4: Early in the month, Garreton said that he was sure that the rebels had committed massacres after fighting ended in the region and had seen what he had called common graves and had gathered witness
1: statements. The team wants to examine the sites, but they need Kabila's permission. In late April 1997, he finally grants it. The AFP article continues.
4: Garaton expressed his hope that a commission of inquiry made up of UN special rapporteurs on human rights and experts would be formed to determine how many people may have been killed near former Rwandan refugee camps along the Zairean and Rwandan borders.
1: The first meeting is scheduled for May. But how far will the Special UN Investigation Team get in the region? And what will they find? Next time on Speaking Out, the hunting and killing of Rwandan refugees in Zaire. The MSF Holland exploratory teams finished their reports on the missions into Masisi and Shabunda in the Kivus. The details about mass graves, massacres, and the fact that the Alliance appear to be using humanitarian teams as bait to lure refugees out of the forests send shockwaves through the other MSF sections.
5: I went to see
1: the director of communications, Jean-Hervé Bradol,
4: and told him that this information is a bombshell, it's extremely serious, it's monstrous. Why have we waited? I said to
0: him, we can't leave the office tonight
4: without doing something
3: about it.
1: There is a huge internal debate within MSF over the decision to go down the road of silent advocacy rather than speak out about the abuses. MSF France in particular pushes for public advocacy, but their methods turn out to be divisive and perceived as potentially dangerous for teams in the field. This MSF podcast is based on an original MSF case study called The Hunting and Killing of Rwandan Refugees in Zaire, Congo, 1996-1997. It's written by Laurence Binet and is part of the Speaking Out Case Studies series, a project by MSF International. This podcast series is produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Laurence Binet, Martin Solnier, and Rebecca Golden-Timsar. The narrator is Nick Owen. The extracts are read by Danielle Stagg and Matthew Wade. Additional voiceovers and readings are by Kathy Hewison and Joanne Wong. Music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. A special thanks to Brigitte Doppler, Dr. Eric Gomar, and Anne Gibert. To read the full study and discover other case studies, please go to our website msf.org/speakingout. Thanks for listening.